0: Welcome to Healing Conversations with Pastor Dave Roberts. We don't talk- your relationships were deeper and communicating was easier? Do you leave conversations feeling frustrated and empty? Healing Conversations helps us reveal our truest and deepest identities. Dave Roberts, Senior Pastor of Montrose Church and author of Healing Conversations brings us insight on how we can deepen our love for each other by way of good communication. Let's work on this together. And now... Here's Pastor Dave.
1: Well, good morning and welcome. We are thinking today uh, along those lines that we have been the last few weeks, overlooked. And uh, overlooked is dealing with those overlooked little books in the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. And each of them uh, are stories that have significant impact on what's happening in our own world, in our own culture these uh, prophets of the Old Testament drilling down into some very specific things. And uh, we're going to talk about one of those people today. Uh, His name is Micah. He lived in a a little town way out southwest of Jerusalem. And so if you stop for a minute and you think about uh, this setup and who he is and where he lives, he lives on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And uh, he lives uh, sort of on the To the Southwest, which means he lives on the, on the plain of Judah. He lives uh, in an area that is adjacent to the Mediterranean Sea. He's getting close to the coastal plain there in a little village. And so some commentators and uh, scholars think that uh, Micah was sort of a country fella who kind of lived out in the middle of nowhere and, and had a sort of a separation from all of the politics of the day and so he has a clear view of what God is doing and saying. But I think as we get into the story, we're going to find out that Micah was actually fairly well connected and tied to the politics of Jerusalem. And he knew a lot about what was going on. And we can, we can glean from his writing and some of the things that he says and does uh, that he's really tied in. A few weeks ago, we talked about Amos. Amos was uh, another prophet who came from a small town. He was a farmer. He lived to the southeast side of Jerusalem, so more inland towards the Dead Sea, more in what we officially call the wilderness, but certainly the desert area. Uh, And he was a genuine farmer, sheep herder, uh, and was that country guy that, uh, you know, just wasn't caught up in it all, but had prophetic words to speak. Micah's not that guy. He comes out from a small village, but uh, a lot is going on in his story. So he lives at a time um, where the kings of Judah are Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. Uh, It's just before the fall of the northern kingdom, about the same time as the story we told last week about Jonah. And so, here's what's going on in the world of Israel at the time. The northern and the southern kingdom are split. They have been split for uh, almost 200 years now. And a time of great wealth and prosperity is going on. And so, as the, as the time draws nearer and Assyria is rising in power, and we're going to see in short order the fall of the northern kingdom, uh, but right now, both kingdoms are thriving. Uh, There's great wealth. There has been expansion, commerce. Uh, We talked about this, but uh, Solomon way back, if you go 200 years earlier, had married into a number of different uh, kingdoms. He had married queens from a number of different places, expanding the influence and the wealth of Israel. And they've continued to thrive in that. Even after the split of the kingdoms, they've continued to Uh, commercially be a time of great wealth and affluence. And so Micah comes along and says, man, it turns out that affluence is not a great thing to build character in human beings. And so he's got this uh, mindset that's very, very powerful. And the mindset is that he really feels that God has spoken to him and he has an empowering kind of thing happening to him he gets it. He sees what God has to say. And then on the other side of that, he is a very unique personality in that he has the courage to say and do whatever needs to be said and done, to take what he is hearing from God and to say it out loud and to say it in ways that are meaningful. And so if you have this uh, supreme self-confidence that I am absolutely hearing what God has to say, and you have this sort of unbridled courage to go out and do it, that's a dangerous combination of things. I mean, there's not a single one of us that would look at that and go, hmm, I'm not sure he's a guy I'd want to know. If he thinks he knows exactly what God is saying and he's not afraid to say it, that seems like a loose cannon to me. And he would be. But if you think of those two things on a continuum, on one side this sort of influence of the Holy Spirit teaching him and giving him information and insight, and on the other side of the continuum on the far end, this courage to go out and say and do it. In the middle is something that is really the theme and the point of all of Micah's writing. And it is what keeps his ego in check. It's what keeps him from becoming dangerous. It's what keeps him in a space that makes him such a powerful, beneficial person. And that thing is a commitment to justice and fairness. And so in Micah, we're going to see these three things and how they work, how his sense of justice and fairness causes him to lose his ego. He's not in it for himself. He's not in it for what he can get out of it. He's not in it to gain influence. He's not in it to gain wealth. He sees what's happening around him, and he has good insight into it, and he's courageous enough to speak it, but he never allows it to become anything other than an effort to make world a better place, to benefit the people around him. And that matters a great deal. There are all kinds of abuses going on. And so Micah is living in an age where some things are going on. So here's what's happening. Uh, Around him in his little village out in the southwest plain of Judah, the kings and powers of the southern kingdom have built five fortress cities around his little village. So when we talk about him being sort of disconnected, we, we think he's so well connected into Jerusalem's politics because actually the politics had come to him. Uh, they were invested in these five cities that were surrounding his little village. So people who had been in power in Jerusalem, and this had been going on in the northern kingdom as well as the southern kingdom, people who had been in power had decided, you know what, we need some fortress cities out there near the Mediterranean. You know, we need a fortress city to the south to protect us from the Philistines. We need, uh, as a matter of fact, we better have two or three down there. And then we need some to the northern end to protect from anyone who might come in from the Mediterranean. So they began to build these fortress cities. And while they were built under the guise of being, you know, fortresses, they actually had become kind of vacation homes for the wealthy, for the politically connected. And so what Micah had been observing through his lifetime is he'd been seeing people come out from Jerusalem into these fortress cities and uh, buy and take land that didn't belong to them and to drag people into court, and to pay off the judges, and to steal land, and to—the whole system had become corrupt. And so Micah has a front row seat to that. There's an intimate story that takes place in 1 Kings, and it happens 100 years before this, but this practice had been going on, and the story that takes place is sort of, if you just wanted to get an intimate look at how it worked— Here's a story from 1 Kings, and it happens to King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, perhaps two of the most infamous leaders uh, in history. Their names still today, especially Jezebel, uh, continues to kind of reek of uh, corruption. But the story is that Ahab had built himself a fortress city. He had built himself a a place, a, a vacation space, a summer palace, whatever you want to call it. And he went to that place, and he observed that next to it was a vineyard. And the vineyard belonged to a poor man, and that poor man's name was Naboth. And uh, he thought, you know, this vineyard's adjacent to my new vacation home, my new palace, and I would like to plant a vegetable garden there because I like fresh vegetables, and it seems like an ideal spot. So he approached Naboth and he said, uh, I'd like to buy the land, uh, I'd like to give you a better vineyard anywhere in the kingdom. And uh, if not, then I'll pay you what it's worth, and and I'd like to have a vegetable garden. Naboth said, can't be. Can't do it. This is my ancestor's land, and I cannot part with it. Now, you should know, as a background of the story, that this was not something that anything in the Jewish law allowed for. The land had been given to the tribes and to the families by God. At the time of Joshua and distributing the land, it is a gift of God to maintain the land. And you couldn't sell your family land. You couldn't part with it. It didn't go away from you. There was no provision in the law for that. Now, if you got into debt and you had to sell the family farm, you could do that. But in the year of Jubilee, which came around every 50 years, the land reverted to your family because it belonged to you. And so there was no way for you to part from the land that was given to you by tribal right all of those centuries before. And here's Ahab, a king of Israel, saying to Naboth, Sell me your land. And Naboth is saying, no, the law is very clear. This land belongs to me. It belongs to my ancestors. That other piece of land you would give me would not belong to me. It would belong to someone else. You are just a king. You're just a manager of what God has already done. And this does not belong to you. You can't have it. And so Ahab is depressed. He's sad. He goes back to his palace and he goes to his room and he pouts. He's depressed. And Jezebel comes and says, time for dinner. And Ahab says, I'm not hungry and I'm not going to eat. And she says, what's wrong with you? And he says, well, I, I got a palace going out there and I wanted to have a vegetable garden. And I approached Naboth and I asked him for his vineyard and he told me he couldn't have it. And so I'm just mad about it and I'm depressed. And she said, are you a king or are you not a king? And she says, I'll take care of the vineyard. You get up and wash your face and go eat your dinner. And so we're told that Ahab gets up and washes his face and he goes and eats his dinner. And meanwhile, Jezebel sends a message to the leaders around the little village where Naboth lives and says, throw a big party and invite Naboth and send him in a place of prominence where everyone can see him and put two people on each side who will testify against him. And when the party is at its height, have them accuse him. We're going to stop, take a break. We'll finish the story of Naboth right after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Healing Conversations on KABC 790. I'm Dave Roberts. We're talking about leadership and overlook leadership, and we talked about it a little bit last week, talking about it a little more, talking about the story of Naboth and the prophet Micah. A hundred years apart, Micah lives in the southern kingdom a hundred years after Naboth. But just as an example of what Micah was experiencing around his little village on the plain of Judah, it turns out Ahab wanted a piece of land and uh, Naboth, who owned it, said no. And uh, uh, Ahab was mopey about it and Jezebel said, don't worry about it, I'll handle it. She sent a message, throw a big party, seat Naboth in a place of prominence. And during the festivities when everybody is there and everyone can see, have the two people on either side stand and accuse him of blaspheming against God and blaspheming against the king and drag him out of the city and stone him to death. And so the bribe in place the officials in the village take Naboth and they set him down and they accuse him and they drag him outside the city. And then Jezebel approaches Ahab and says, now go by the vineyard because it is now available to you. And so Ahab does. This little story that takes place in 1 Kings is what's happening around Micah. People are having their land taken from them. They drag. They are, they are taking officials into court where the law is on their side, but the rich and wealthy are paying off the judges so that uh, the people aren't winning and uh, the corruption and the abuse that's going on is just overwhelming. And so Micah comes with this great insight into what God is doing and also the courage to speak it. And he is going to have justice and fairness sort of be the tempering part of his story and of his life. And he opposes two major groups of people. The first group are the other prophets. In 3.5, he writes these words. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat. But they prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. And so what Mike is saying is the prophets will say whatever you want them to say if you are willing to pay them off. And so he opposes the prophets who are supposedly speaking for God but have become a part of the problem, that the leaders of the temple and of Judaism have become as much a part of the power structure and as much a part of the corruption as any of the political leaders. And that leads to the second group he opposes, and that is the leaders, the Actual political leaders, the leaders of the people of Jerusalem, Micah 3, 1. Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, stripped off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. And so he not only opposes the prophets, but also the leaders who are taking the people and taking what is rightfully belongs to others, and and they are using it for their own entertainment. And it's kind of what the world has come to. And it happens in times of affluence. It happens when things are going well, sometimes in difficult times, in times of difficulty and tribulation and trouble, we, we sort of double down and we become more serious about the deeper things and fairness and justice and right and wrong. But when things are going well, we have a tendency to sort of overlook that. So Micah's judgments really kind of come down to three rebukes. And this is what he talks about. Number one, the leaders are perverting justice. Justice is no longer justice. The leaders speak and act in ways that just aren't fair. I'm so glad this isn't true anymore. I'm glad we don't really deal with this in our practical lives now. It seems that the leaders favor some over others. Justice is supposed to be an even-handed and egalitarian system that offers protection for everyone. But the religious elders and the government leaders had lost all sense of justice. And Micah comes along to speak over them and to say, hey, God is about justice and fairness. If it's not just and it's not fair, don't blame God because that's not who God is, and that's not what He's about, and that's not what He stands for. Secondly, the leaders had begun to covet the belongings of others. They had come to believe that whatever they wanted was theirs to take, that it didn't matter who had it or where it came from, that if they wanted it and desired it, it was their right to take it. The families connected to the tribes had been given the lands on which they lived section by section and parcel by parcel, and they had no right to it. In fact, what Micah will ultimately say to these folks is, you have taken what has not belonged to you. Now you better buckle up because Assyria and Babylon is going to come and they're going to take what you think belongs to you. And so it's going to be the ultimate justice is because what you have done to others is going to happen to you. Number three, he opposes hypocritical religiosity. That's a big saying. He opposes the folks that act like they're super religious, but they don't stand for anything fair or just or right or good. But instead, they're lining their own pockets and they're enjoying the wealth of a great life. They're committing themselves to their own entertainment. They're committing themselves to their own comfort. They're committing themselves to building for themselves uh, some kind of nest egg. I'm so glad our leaders don't do this anymore. I'm so glad that when we look at our leaders, they are not among the wealthiest people in our society, living lives that most of us can't even imagine, while others just struggle to put food on the table. I'm so glad we've grown and matured in ways where this is no longer a case. I'm so glad that just for the typical human being, you know, that we are not living just to perpetuate our own existence, but we have some great concern for those around us as well. And so he opposes. In fact, very, very pointedly, he rebukes those religious, those folks that pretend to be religious but don't have any compassion. Micah 6, 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly before your God? And so the, the idea is simply this, you know, what you've sown you're going to reap. And what God really wants from you is to to love mercy, and to act justly, and to live in some humility. Act like you're accountable to something than your own wants, needs, and desires, like ultimately that it matters what we choose. It matters how we live. It matters how we behave. It matters how we treat others. It matters. It matters. It matters. It matters. And yet Micah is a story of great hope. And so as we move into chapter 7, we read these words in verse 18, who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You'll be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged an oath to our ancestors in days long ago. And so he says there's three reasons In the face of all the corruption and all the power struggle and all the bribery and all of the abuse that's going on, there's a reason for hope. And here's three of them. Number one, it's God's covenant love. God says, I'll do my part, you do your part, and I will always stick with you. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. That God has made some promises, and he's serious about taking care of people. I think that matters. I think God is in the business of caring for human beings. Sometimes we get lost in our own story. We drill down so far into what's happening to us that we forget that God's in it for the good of everyone. Talk about Jonah last week. We want him to love those we love and hate those we hate, but that's not how God works. God loves the people who are his creation, which is every single person who's ever walked the face of the planet, if you want to believe the biblical narrative which means that we're responsible to love every single person who walks on the face of the planet. And God has made some promises, and he's faithful to continue. There's a trajectory in the story, and the trajectory is to good, to redemption. I hear a lot of Christians talking about how it's all falling apart, and at some point God's going to come and destroy all of those people, and he's going to take all of us people away. That's not a very nice fit for the biblical narrative, in which God is redeeming the world and the people in it, that he is working to bring about his covenant love. Second is God's character. He asks this question, who's a God like you? Who is a God like you who takes all of the messes we make and then forgives them? Who takes us at our worst and then wraps us up in his arms and says, you know what, I'm just going to give you a fresh start and a new beginning because I feel like you need that. I think, you know, the scripture teaches us that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. And I think that means, you know, for me personally, that sometimes I'll bring up something and say, you know, God, I've failed at this and I feel bad about this. And I just want to confess it and ask you to forgive me. And me being human, you know, I'll remember it in five minutes. And I go, you know, that thing we were talking about, God, that I feel so bad about. I think you must look at me and go, no, I don't remember. You're a new creation. The old is gone. Let me ask you this. Where are you ever going to get a deal like that? Who else will ever treat you like that? And Micah says, this is the nature of this God that we serve, this God of great justice, this God of great fairness. If it appeals to us, if we can see the point of it. I always like this. You know, people in our culture today are like, well, if that's God, then he doesn't get to be God. Listen, if you think you have mercy that God doesn't have, you're just kidding yourself. If you think you have grace that God doesn't have, you're just kidding yourself. If you know anything about grace or mercy or justice, it's because it's a God thing that he's instilled in his creation. Why do we even have a concept of such? It exists in us. The ancients said it's the highest good, and that's a good place to break. We'll come back and continue this conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Healing Conversations on KABC 790. I'm Dave Roberts. We're talking about overlooked leadership, Micah, this guy who has this empowering insight from God and this great courage to go share it. But instead of using it for his own means, he, in the middle, is tempered by great sense of fairness and justice. And he tells us there's great reason for hope. In the middle of all the corruption and craziness, there's going to be some justice you who are taking things that don't belong to you, the things that you're taking are going to be taken from you, and you're going to feel very misused when that happens. And he says there's a reason to be optimistic and hopeful, and the first one is that God has a covenant kind of love. I'm, I'm in it for the long-term good of human beings on this planet, and I'm working on your behalf. And then God's character. Who's a God like you? that Just for simply asking you, give us a fresh start and a new beginning. You wash away the old. Paul will say it like this. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. The whole symbol of baptism was so powerful in the ancient world. They believed that when you disappeared under the water, you were buried. Your old life was gone. The person died. And then you were resurrected to a new life. So that even within Roman law, if you had a debt, you had to collect the debt before the person was baptized because after baptism, they were that old person didn't exist anymore. This was a brand new creation. And those images of the ancient world are picked up in the traditions of Judaism, but also Christianity. It's a burial to the old life. We we take groups to Israel every couple of years, and one of the highlights of that is a, a morning in which we go down to a place called Yardenik. It is a baptismal site just south of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, uh, as the Jordan empties out of the Sea of Galilee, and we give everyone on the trip an opportunity to be baptized in the Jordan River, and it's a powerful moment to just think about all that it involves and all the symbolism of it, and to be given an opportunity to say, wouldn't you like to wash a bunch of stuff away? Just fresh start, new beginning, forgiveness, real forgiveness. Who is a God like that, Micah asks Who forgives in that way? And then finally, he highlights one last reason for hope is the promises, that God keeps his promises, that even when we're faithless, still he's faithful, and his promise is to do good, his promise is to bring about justice. I I mentioned as we went to break the summum bonum. The ancients believed that God was the highest good, the summum bonum, the sum of all good. And so they would say, if you think about an attribute and you think, well, if, you know, God should be X, then that's God. And then tomorrow you think, but this no, but, but it'd be better if God was, yeah, then that's God. God is the highest good. God is the one of whom you can think nothing higher. It's so funny in our culture, how we've become folks who are like, well, if God is like that, then I don't, I don't love him. He can't be God. Well, if that's your concept of God, it's not God. If you believe you're having a sense of mercy or justice or you have insight into the way the culture ought to work and that happened independently, God is the highest good. And he is a God of great love and a God of great mercy and a God of great compassion, but also a God of justice and fairness, which leads us kind of to the final little wrap-up here before I bring Eric into the studio, and that is, how are you leading Are you really, and and we can just do this in form of a question, what percentage of time do you spend on yourself and your stuff? You know, how much energy are you giving to perpetuating your own existence as opposed to making the world a better place to live, making your own home a better place, making your own family? Somewhere, the problem in Israel was that people had become more interested in self-indulgence than sacrifice. And surely that can't be true of us, right? that we're more interested in what's pleasing to ourselves than sacrificing for the benefit of the people around us, even in our own families, our own extended families? I mean, what would it be like if we took some of this stuff seriously and we believe that God was a God of great mercy, that what He wants from us is He wants us to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before our God. Eric, welcome to the studio. How are you? What's up, Dave? Hey. <clears throat> so you had a big grin on your face at some point. So I'm, it makes me, you know, a little bit, you know, <laughs> scared. Honestly, it makes me scared. I don't know what you've come up with to ask or say. Yeah. And you've been gone for a few weeks, you know. I mean, you were here last know, week, two weeks in a row. And that just makes me think that you've probably been saving up stuff for a while, That's true. you know, playing, you know, how can I embarrass him on the radio? <laughs> Is that <laughs> what I'm trying to do? No, 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 no. You are asking good questions. You always ask good questions. I don't trying- always
0: have the answers. Like a Micah, but... I'm just trying to keep the leadership in check, <laughs> speaking out against
1: the leadership and the false prophets. Oh man. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, I've always been a little power hungry. And I <laughs> yeah, am, it's totally you. I am so
0: into that. You if know. I The first thing I describe you as is power hungry always.
1: <laughs> it's definitely you. Well, you know, somebody might be tuning in for the first time. <laughs> <and they're> going, <laughs> I don't know what these guys are talking that's about. That's true. That's anyway, true. so what do you think as we talk about Micah and leadership and well, the story I, of Naboth and all that I stuff? I was
0: laughing because the story of Naboth is the emperor's new groove. It's oh, the yeah. same plot. Yeah, isn't it? Right. Yeah. yeah but every- instead of the king wanting to build a swimming pool on someone's yeah. land, the, he wants a vineyard. Like I was waiting for you to say, and then God— Turned King Ahab into a llama, and there and was Queen Jezebel and Kronk went and got Nabal. <laughs> like it's the same exact plot.
1: That is really good. I had not <laughs> created that parallel. And there are other people out there right now going, "I don't have no idea what I you're know. talking about." I have about an eight year old. That's seen. why. Oh well, that is a great movie. It is a great. That movie. That is a really really good movie. So uh, the Emperor's New Groove. No, yeah. it's
0: it's dark though. It's a it's the R version of it's, Emperor's
1: New Groove. It's dark. It Sometimes I I think about the fact that now we, let's clear that up. Naboth is the R rated version. Yes, of yes, yeah. Yes. Yes. So you don't need to be afraid to show your kid. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the Emperor's New Groove. That's not the R rated version. That's that's a funny movie. Well done.
0: Yeah, it is funny how like we we get all into these shows like Game of Thrones and yeah. the Last Kingdom. You know these yeah. super dark, vengeful shows and. The Old Testament is messed up, man. Oh, man. If someone made a series about the Old Testament,
1: it would be TV mature. You know, this thing is really funny to me because sometimes, you know, they will do these biblical epics, but they always have to add something. And I'm always like, why do you need to do that? The story is already, you know, it's already so dramatic and profound. Why do you need to add like the recent Noah in which then all the stone people came to life and you're like, uh, you know, the whole Noah story is fairly dramatic already. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure we needed, you know, living. St- the Nephilim. The right? Nephilim, yeah. Nephilim. Whatever that's. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but I think that's so true. It, uh, it is a, and it's so, uh, this is one of the things I love about the Minor Prophets. Is Micah is talking about a society that is so recognizable to us. Uh, totally. Of great affluence in which selfishness at the highest levels. Uh, Sort of takes the place of justice and mercy, and that happens in the religious realm as well as in the political realm, and how it's just not okay. Nothing can sustain itself when it becomes self-indulgent like that. Right. It is crazy to
0: think, like, we still use the term, she's a Jezebel. Yes. In such a negative light. Yeah. Just because of, like, there's a lot of bad stuff that happens, That a lot of bad stuff people do in the Bible, but this is one like we've held on to. Yeah.
1: Well, that's infamous. I mean, that's that's when you really know you're infamous. When people would like, I don't know who Jezebel was, but I know she wasn't good. Yeah. I don't know when she lived or where it was. and Because if you ask people, they'd be, they wouldn't probably know she was a queen of Israel, but they would know that she was bad news. Right. I, I want to get into this because... There's a part of this
0: story that feels a little distant to me. Yeah. And I want you to try to like bring it, bring it back to me. Because when you talk about Micah, like opposing the leaders and opposing the prophets. Right. I don't know how to like take that now mm-hmm. because was Christianity was, was all that like one thing then? Because it's not one thing now. Like I don't even yep. know what leader I would oppose sure. now. I don't know yeah. what prophets are oh, yeah, now. Yeah, it's so fractured and divided. Well, number one,
1: this isn't Christianity because we're still yeah, yeah, you know, a, few, yeah. <laughs> a few hundred years before Christ. So this is Judaism, and uh, you know, but I think uh, you are talking in a simpler time in many ways. Yeah. So number one, you're talking about a king. So each kingdom has a king. So we're not talking about a two party system in which you know there are faulty leaders on all sides. You can kind of go the king and those people associated with him who make up the leadership and then you can point to a single source of faith you know there's only the temple there's only judaism you know until babylon sacks the southern kingdom and destroys the temple there is still that central sense there is another temple in the northern kingdom but all reflective of judaism and so it is a simpler system and there's really only two places to point leadership is sort of all encompassing under the king and the royal charter and You know, the religious leadership is all encompassing under Judaism. Mm -hmm. So it is simpler in that sense.
0: Yeah, I just don't know what that opposition would look like now. Like if we had a singular person that was called to do that, you wouldn't even be able. There's no No. path
1: to be able to do it. Nor do I think that that's the path. I don't think the path is what we're against. It's what we're for. Mm. I think it's getting some clarity of what is justice and what am I about as a human being? Am I about just taking care of myself and my own? Or do I feel a deeper sense of responsibility to community, you know, because in what way do we really live in community in our modern culture? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, those of us that are really blessed might have, you know, lifelong friends. We might have some connection beyond our own immediate family. But most people don't. Most people are pretty lonely and we don't really have meaningful ways of expressing community. You know, church used to be a very valid way of expressing community and and in some instances still is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you know that's a part of the issue that's going on is, you know, not what are we against and who would we oppose, but what are we doing positively to change the world. We're gonna talk about that right after this break. listening to Healing Conversations on KABC 790. I'm Dave Roberts. Eric McClinahan's in studio. We are talking about Micah, and we're talking about what we're for instead of what we're against. And so let's jump back into that conversation. What are your thoughts, Eric, as we think about that?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I want to keep going along that train of thought. One of your points was the leadership was perverting justice. And it's interesting because... If we were to draw a parallel today and we were just to talk politics, if you took any issue at our church and put it in front of people, right? half the people would say the leadership of the left is perverting justice and half the people would say the leadership of the right is perverting right. justice. So are we talking about then something that is beyond that? Yeah.
1: Oh, please, let's be talking about something, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I do think that's really important because I do think, you know, everyone hates to suffer from bigotry. So I hate it when people talk about Christians as if we are one cohesive clump of something. Mm -hmm. And consistently they would choose as the poster child for Christianity, somebody that, you know, you and I would look at and go, oh, please don't, don't make me known by that. That's, you know, those words, that attitude, that spirit, that theology, that teaching and yet we do that to each other consistently. Democrats are all blah blah blah. Republicans are all blah blah blah. Well, that's bigotry. Mm-hmm. You know, conservatives are this. You know, liberals are this. Well, they're not. And, you know, we, we are all very different. And so, if we think—and this is the arrogance—you know—we <laughs> think that somehow our politics today in North America is somehow defining the world and defining human history. We are a blip on the radar. Democrats and Republicans, current leadership, past leadership, blip on the radar. You know, get out, get on a plane, go to another country, go somewhere. You know, there are folks around the world that could care less about politics in the United States of America. We are not the politics that are going to define history. Mm-hmm. We're just a time and space. And I think, does it matter what goes on here? Sure. Do we want it to be the best it can be? Sure. But to think that the whole history of the world and of the planet is being defined by the events that are unfolding inside this country is it's the height of arrogance. Mm -hmm. And so uh, particularly when you talk about the life of the church, the church is about the kingdom of God. It's not about the United States and it's not about politics. And are we supposed to advocate? We're supposed to advocate for justice and mercy. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But those are kingdom of God values that the Democrats need to apply and the Republicans need to apply. And if at some point there's an independent or a green party or another, you know, the Whigs and the Tories, whatever they all end up being, you know, our value structure and what we're seeking doesn't change. We're seeking, as Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, yeah, I hope it transcends all of that and has grace for all of the political perspectives because I find that people who... You know, lean to either direction, do so for very specific reasons. And most of them are pretty valid and they have a pretty good point to make when you listen to them instead of labeling them.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's a big problem. It is a big problem. And you call it hypocritical religiosity (laughs) in this, which I have have to look down and read because I get
1: tongue-tied every time I try to say that. (laughs) Well, let's just be clear. We were saying that Micah was critiquing. Yes, yes. But yes, I suppose we could talk about that in modern terms, too.
0: Just the idea of how religion is used in politics. Yeah. Used, not practiced. Oh, yeah. Do you see hope of that changing? And not changing because it crashes. Like, is somebody going to stand up
1: and fix it? Yeah. I don't. This is is where we're so intellectually lazy in general. So I hear people say, you know, most of the wars fought in the history of humanity have been fought up for religious reasons. Uh, Well, if you did the tiniest bit of research, what you would find is key leaders in time have used religion as a tool to motivate people to fight in wars but generally, the wars were being fought over power, of course, and you know. expansion and wealth.
0: It, religion you know. was the way Green. to get the yes. the guy at his farm
1: to come out with his sword and stand in a line, right? And yeah. so, you know, Plato said all those years ago when he wrote the Republic, "How are you going to control the masses? Religion is a tool that controls the masses." He had no faith; he didn't believe in a, you know in any of that. He just saw it as a meaningful tool, and I think politicians still see religion as a meaningful tool to motivate people. That's what's going on around the world, whether it's Islam or. Christianity, you know, here's a meaningful tool by which we can motivate people instead of here's the genuine article about a transformed life that is full of mercy, that is full of grace, that is full of humility, where you can't, you know, what Jesus says is you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, you know, where somebody comes away from an experience with somebody of faith and goes, man, I just, I just feel better. I feel better about my life and the world. And I feel more hopeful. I feel more encouraged. I feel graced. I feel loved. I think... You know, these are the two great commands, love God, love each other. So I think, yeah, religion is used. And is there any hope? Yeah, I still think there are people. I mean, here we are. Here we are on a Sunday morning having a conversation that is like, no, let's be better. Let's at least be better. We can do better. And I think that we are just a couple of people who effectively speak to hundreds every week, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in an intimate way, in our own setting and whatever thousands are hearing right now. Um, But I think there are lots of really good people around the world, both inside of religion and outside of religion, even within politics that are trying and fighting for good things. I believe that most people want good things. I really believe that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't see a path forward, honestly. Yeah.
0: I mean, it it feels, yeah, we're here talking about it now, but this feels like a small percentage of what's being talked about. Well, and what's being shared. Sure. And,
1: you know, I agree with that. But here's the thing that I do realize. I've seen it happen in my lifetime. I've seen the mood of the world be super dark. I've lived through Vietnam and the politics of that and the politics of of leadership in the Nixon era and, you know, Watergate and, you know, corruption at the highest levels of the government. And and, you know, what you look back at and you go, we didn't see a way forward. We thought. And then just one or two great leaders step forward. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing what healing can take place with a shift of perspective. Right. And and it can happen. I mean, you know, there are times where there's John F. Kennedy at a time when his words were so incredibly transformational right. to a culture, to a whole culture. So I, I think we've seen what great leaders can do when they have the priorities clear and when they're effective in what they do. You know, right now, what's going on in the Ukraine and what's going on with the president of the Ukraine, there's a leader that has had a tremendous impact, even in our own country, of that's what courage looks like. That's what integrity looks like.
0: Right.
1: And that's across the aisle. You know, that doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. Everybody goes, that's the kind of guy we ought to get to be president of the United States. Somebody that, you know, puts his money where his mouth is and puts his work ethic out there and he's in the trenches and he's got courage and he says what needs to be said. And so I do think it is hopeful. But, you know, what you're saying reminds me of this. At the end of the, of the 19th century, everybody basically, the, the cultural mood was we're headed for disaster because we can't produce enough food to feed the masses. Mm-hmm. Uh, starvation is imminent. You know, the world is going to enter a period of time when it simply cannot produce enough food. And so all of the social, you know, writing, everything that's going on, the commentary is very dark. Mm. And then the tractor is invented. And suddenly we can produce more food than we ever imagined and farming techniques change. And so we don't know what the tractor is for the 21st century. We don't know what the tractor is, but we know we're reaching points of desperation and necessity is the mother of invention. So I am hopeful that we are on the brink of a breakthrough. Yeah. That might look like a multi-party system in our culture and country where we're no longer a two-party system fighting one against the other, but maybe we're four or five parties now where everybody right. kind of have to get way more cooperative. I don't know what it looks like. But maybe I think it's is literally
0: coming. a tractor driving over all our phones. <laughs>
1: maybe. Maybe that's maybe. it. <laughs> maybe it's the decimation of social media. Yeah. Well, at some point aren't you weary of social media yeah and so the, so everything new is getting old I mean at some point I used to pay attention to some things and it would make me mad now I don't yeah. if, if it's not if it's not entertaining to me I don't spend any time on it because I'm I'm already worn out with all that I, f- I feel like the main thing is it's not
0: productive for humanity to know this much about ourselves I
1: agree I agree but you know, Time has ways of correcting things, and I think we will see some of that. For example, you know, it's just very common now for parents to go, uh, no, I'm controlling screen time. I'm controlling how much exposure you have. And I think as adults, we're starting to go, yeah, it's probably not good for me either. You know, I probably need to actually read a book or I need to go for a walk or I need to get out. I don't need to be sitting here on my phone for hours. Mm -hmm. You know, I am very optimistic about How things are. I think the trajectory of the biblical story is optimism. I'll lean on God's covenant, his character, his love. Yeah.
0: But I don't see it. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I can't envision it. Yeah. How it's going to be okay.
1: Well, I, and I think that's generational in some ways Mm. because some of us have lived long enough that we've been through some of that, but I think also, yeah, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. And I think, uh, you know, together we kind of go, let's be realistic, but let's be optimistic too. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll go out today and that you will love mercy and that you will seek justice and that you will walk humbly in your story and in your life. Do something good for somebody today. God bless. Thanks for listening.